Paul Miller opens his excellent new book, The Religion of American Greatness, with this recollection from a 2018 Trump rally. America is winning again. America is respected again, said then President Trump, because we are putting America first. We're taking care of ourselves for a change. Folks, you know they have a word. It sort of became old fashioned. It's called nationalist. And I say, really? You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. And the crowd roared back, USA, USA. This nationalism, which Trump inhabited and encouraged in his own supporters, is a posture that aligns or subsumes a person with his or her nation and its interests, especially to the detriment of other nations. But Christian nationalism is a bit different. Christian nationalism infuses national pride with the rhetoric and symbols of Christianity and religious faith. Sociologists, historians, and other analysts trace clear threads of Christian nationalism in Trump's campaign. In the five months prior to his election, for example, then-candidate Trump gave explicit assurances to white evangelicals on numerous occasions. In June 2016, for example, he told the Faith and Freedom Coalition, we will respect and defend Christian Americans. In August 2016, he told a group of Orlando pastors, your power has been totally taken away, but under a Trump administration, you'll again have great power. And in September 2016, he told Family Research Council's Values Voters Summit, in a Trump administration, our Christian heritage will be cherished, protected, defended like you've never seen before. Believe me. As similar forms of national populism were rising in other countries, there were foretastes of the ways in which President Trump and his appointees and loyal supporters would further invoke and fuel modern-day Christian nationalism. But apart from the candidate, what's the deeper appeal Christian nationalists make? Well, in a long-form Washington Post essay this month, Michael Gerson argues that two dynamics have recently stoked a resurgence in Christian nationalism. First, he says that a kind of disoriented flux of American ethical norms and the condescension of progressive elites. So for conservative Catholics and evangelicals who today hold the same traditional views on marriage that Barack Obama held just a decade ago, or others who oppose the latest fast ascendant gender ideology, it's easy to fear your values are under assault by your government, by woke capitalism, by the media, and by academia. Political opportunists seize upon that fear and stoke it. In America, the fight back beliefs of white authoritarian populists got a new lift. Not just Christian nationalism, but also Confederate nostalgia, replacement theory, even QAnon accusations of satanic child sacrifice by liberal politicians. To discuss some of these dynamics, we bring you two of the foremost academic experts on Christian nationalism, one a political scientist and the other a sociologist. Professor Paul Miller is a citizen soldier who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, worked as a national security official in the Bush and Obama administrations before turning to academic life first at UT Austin's Clements Center and now at Georgetown University. His July 2022 book, The Religion of American Greatness, is the subject of today's conversation with Sam Perry. And for his part, Professor Sam Perry is the author of four books, including in 2020, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, along with his co-author, 
Andrew Whitehead, Sam has been called upon by many journalists in the last two years who are trying to better understand this phenomenon. Now teaching sociology at University of Oklahoma, Dr. Perry considers many questions in that book. How ought we to define and measure Christian nationalism? What, if anything, differentiates Christian nationalism from conservative evangelicalism? How do these categories differ, if at all, for black Christians in America? And given the very real possibility of an upsurge rather than decline in Christian nationalism, even since 2020, is another January 6th type event in our future? Let's jump right in. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Josh, for having us on the show. I really appreciate it. And Sam, it's actually good to meet you. I'm familiar with your work and we've interacted here and there over Twitter, but it's good to actually get a chance to meet you, at least virtually. And I think I'd love to start by asking your book, Taking America Back for God, that you co-authored with Andrew Whitehead, really, I think, kind of set an agenda for this emerging scholarship on Christian nationalism. It came along with several other works in recent years, and yours was maybe at the earlier end. So how would you update? What would you add? What, what would you change, if anything? What would you, how would you update your uh, thesis from that book, given what's unfolded in the last few years? Yeah, that's a great question. I, we've thought about that a lot, honestly. It, I think to some degree, we tried to remedy some of that in the flag and the cross with the emphases that uh, Phil and I have in, the, in this most recent iteration or this most recent book. I would say a, a couple of things that we wanted to expand on that, that I think taking America back for God really didn't focus on too much or, or was lacking. And, and we haven't beat ourselves up about that. I mean, I think all books are imperfect and they're not Bibles are supposed to be. I think academic works are, you know, they, they advance on the basis of new data and new conversations and good questions that we've gotten since then. I think one aspect in taking America back that we wanted to update or spend more time doing is the historical component and where Christian nationalism fits within this historical context, this broader story of America and its relationship with Christianity. And as you, you, you talk about so beautifully in your book, Paul, is this Anglo-Protestantism culture, this assumption of Anglo-Protestantism, this dominant narrative through line that I think is so old and and pervasive, and I think really on the ascendant in terms of like what certain groups of Americans would like to see resurrected and come back and institutionalized. I think the other part that we want to fo- wanted to focus on more in uh, the flag and the cross that we really didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about in taking America back is how powerfully racialized Christian nationalism ended up being. And we didn't we didn't really focus on this uh, because we really didn't have the data at the time. We do talk about this in taking America back. We talk about how. Christian nationalism often operates quite differently for, say, African-Americans than it does for white Americans. We demonstrate that in spades, in the flag and the cross, like just how Americans, white Americans in particular, seem to respond to our questions about Christian nationalism in ways that are oftentimes diametrically opposed or extremely different from, say, the way African-Americans do. White Americans read our questions and they seem to think nostalgically for a time when people like us, the right kind of people, were in charge and we had political influence. African Americans do not read questions about America's Christian heritage or or Christian values or a Christian nation in ways that make them nostalgic for an earlier time, or at least it doesn't seem so. They seem to read it more uh, aspirationally for a country that should have been, the values that we should have lived up to but never quite did. And so I think were we to go back and write Taking America Back Again, I think we would want to be clearer on those points and update those nuances in ways that people find more satisfying, and I think would fill in the gaps that I think we left unaddressed. Yeah, that, that second issue there about race is a really tricky one. 
And in all my conversations about my book, uh, I get versions of the question, is Christian nationalism racist? And I find it to be one of the harder questions to field because there's different ways of approaching that question. And I don't think you can fairly answer it with a straightforward yes or no. I think it's if you just look at its surface claims and take them at face value, the answer is no. But if you dig deeper and look at the embodied practice, there's a longer story to tell, which I think is kind of where some of that polling data comes in. You're able to show the embodied practice and the ways that it is correlated with, overlaps with policy preferences that I might characterize as at least racially insensitive. That's where the longer story comes in. And it's a, it's a difficult one to talk about. Yeah, right, right. Paul, I had, I mean, I, I've uh, I read your book early and uh, was really excited about it. I mean, I think your arguments are so powerful in the book. And I, I think I, I have found them compelling because I, 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 I it's been difficult to, you know, as, as, as a person of faith, as a Christian who, who was already persuaded that I think this is a, a dangerous line of thought and, and, and movement that I think is taking us. And I think the language that you use is, it is illiberal. Uh, it is in, in anti-democratic in a lot of ways. I was already on the team and sold in that in that way. And I think our my own my own books. I would I'm okay saying that I think the audience that we were writing to was probably also persuaded and picked up our books per, because they persuaded that this this might be a problem. I think you have been writing to a a different audience though. I, I think you are more speaking to an audience that may not see a problem with it. I mean, I think even in some kind of pushback. I, I, would, I would in other words, I would. I would love to hear about the kind of pushback that you have gotten from your book as an insider. And I think more as a conservative evangelical insider than I am. I want to hear about like what are the what are the arguments that you have most frequently heard in forms of pushback because I I mean I frankly I feel like you eviscerate the argument so effectively in the book that it's difficult for me to kind of get my mind around like what what critiques you might face and I would love to hear what what kind of counter arguments have you found leveled against your own uh, your own work? Yeah, th- thanks for that. I think it's a good question, and I've been chewing on it actually today, especially in conversation with interviewers and a couple of talks I've given, and in just email correspondence. A couple of themes seem to come up from those who have read the book but are a little, I would say, standoffish, if not, if they just simply disagree. One of them is historical. I think there's a lot of folks who say look, the vision of America you're painting here is just divorced from America as it has been. And isn't there something to be said for staying true to our roots? And we want to, of course, make make it right. We're not talking about returning to our racist roots or anything like that. But look, America is America. And we all know that we have a predominant culture. And why can't we just embrace that and recognize it? So that's, that's kind of counter argument number one. Another one focuses on what I cover in chapter five, which is this question about viewpoint neutrality. A lot of the post-liberal right continues to argue that neutrality is impossible and that it's a Trojan horse for progressivism. And they insist on reading all references to liberalism as just another reference to progressivism. Since I defend the idea of some kind of neutrality, although I, I heavily caveat it in the book, they say, well, look, that's just, you're just opening the door to the progressives uh, right there. So that's another area of pushback I get. And if there's a third one, I think it would be on the issue of disestablishment, uh, separation between church and state, which kind of combines these first two, right? Because historically, we know there was not much of a disestablishment in the United States. 
And if we're going to acknowledge that there's no such thing as neutrality, then we have to embrace our Christian heritage, which means a much more favorable stance towards some kind of establishment. Those are the areas of pushback I think I've gotten. There's probably others, but that's the forefront of my mind right now. Sam, following up on that, I just enjoyed listening to your wonderful podcast with your co-author, Andrew and Miroslav Wolf, who will be uh, speaking with some of our journalists uh, this fall. He kind of gets at some of that too at the end in saying there's a tension here. There's a desire when you have absolute moral beliefs to, to, to put them into practice in the public square. And people wrestle with how to do that. And it's a perfectly natural impulse or instinct to, to want to preserve. Paul says protect. By the time you're done protecting and boxing people out, it becomes illiberalism. But what about that are you finding, particularly in talks with, with more sort of evangelicals and people who are Christian, moral, religious, that that impulse is murky, sticky? Right. I think that is something that we've constantly constantly tried to combat, and not in, not in a way that it makes me defensive. I, I think we want, to, we want to communicate that we have never had as a, as a goal that, say, Christians should have to check their values at the door as if that's even possible, <laughs> as if like Christians can't vote their values or, 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 like, or want to influence society in a positive way being motivated by a, a Christian worldview that, that sees moral values that they, they think are good and healthy and to tr- try to promote. I think the problem, and I think Paul identifies this as well, is where you are advocating for some kind of a minoritarian rule that subverts democracy and it really doesn't trust democracy and would really like to replace that with some other kind of institutional form that allows a, mi- a, a, a diminishing minority of Americans to be able to exercise a disproportionate amount of power to maintain some kind of a cultural structure that, that is increasingly at odds with where most Americans are. I think that, that betrays a lack of faith, that betrays uh, ultimately, practically, in the outworkings of such a situation, it, it inevitably leads to some kind of a violent coercion. And, and some of the folks I are advocating for that, I don't want to name them explicitly, but I, I think if you push them hard enough, they, they would acknowledge that coercion is inevitable that there will be some kind of laws in place that will require the growing secular number of Americans to, say, capitulate to blasphemy laws or Sabbath laws or, or religious tests for public office. I mean, some of these folks are literally advocating that. And so I think on the one hand, there is advocating for my own perspective so that I can, I, I think, promote the values that I think are healthy and life-giving for a society. But then there is also, on the extreme end of that, there is a, a subversion of of democratic process and, and uh, what it, what Paul calls illiberalism, which I think is is something that we have to work away from uh, and, and be and be wary of that that is coercive and constraining in a way that I, I think violates certainly Baptist principles uh, of liberty of religious liberty and I, I believe American principles. One of the other pushbacks I, I've gotten is folks who say, "All right, I've got it. Your argument is that nationalism is illiberal. What's wrong with that?" <laughs> and, and it, uh, right, and it really right. like it takes me a little off guard because I didn't realize that I needed to take the argument to the next step and say, illiberalism is bad because it is oppressive and unloving towards your neighbor. But that is the extent of the argument that you have to make. One small note, you, you said that there's a danger of minoritarian rule. And I get what you're saying because it is a minority. But you understand that the advocates of Christian nationalism don't think they're a minority because they they position themselves as speaking on behalf of all Christians, which is what 70 or 80% of Americans. And so they think they're in the majority and therefore they have the right to do this or that. Even if we grant that, 
It's still wrong because this is a liberal democracy where minorities have rights. Even majorities can't tell us how to worship or what to say. And I think that's an important point, whether it's a majority or minority, to insist that minorities have rights that we have to respect. In terms of critiques of, uh, of work, I think an interesting, an interesting concession, and not really a concession as in, a, as in I'm kind of conceding a point that I wouldn't otherwise acknowledge, but I think it, if, if we get a critique from the left toward our, say, our most recent book, The Flag and the Cross, towards the end of the book, we argue that what is going to be necessary to, I think, overcome a, a very extreme version of uh, white Christian nationalism is a united front in which you've got evangelical never Trumpers from David French and Russell Moore all the way to all the way from people who are like Americans United for Separation of Church and State or Freedom from Religion Foundation who are, who are willing to cooperate to say like, hey, there is this anti-democratic threat that we have to work together to say, hey, this is not consistent with American values and not the kind of world we want to live in. We have found some pushback on the left to say like, we feel like even that is too, we don't want to cooperate with the evangelical never Trumpers. We, we feel like even that is still kind of letting in almost like a a li- illiberal leftism that is also worrisome in, in that it is equally unrealistic and unworkable and hostile, I think, to a, to a broader goal. And one of the concessions that I think we, we want to acknowledge from the right, I think, Paul, you do this as well, is if we are not united as a country by a common Anglo-Protestant culture, if we're, if we're not united and unified around some kind of common religious heritage or some kind of like common religious myth or story that unites us as Americans. What does unite us? Like what what incentive do we have to cooperate, to work together, to identify with one another, one another, to overcome very real diversity and disagreement of, of moral principles? And I think that's a fair, it's a fair question that needs to be answered. And we need to come into the public square to say, oh, okay, what does unite us as Americans? Why would people sign up for military service? Why would people sign up to to serve their neighbor if it is not because of a common belief system, but it is something else, a, a what Stephen Smith calls an enlightened patriotism or some kind of a civic nationalism or some kind of civic patriotism. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts or you, you expound on what does replace that kind of Anglo-Protestantism that apparently motivates us to, to behave as real Americans in neighborly fashion. So when I started the book, I thought that the answer was the creed. And I thought I was going to end up defending essentially pure creedalism. You know, the, American, the, the Constitution, the Declaration, the, the ideals of liberty and equality and all that. And as I worked my way through the research and read everything I could, I was persuaded that's not quite the right answer because the creed by itself, I think, is insufficient. Look, other people around the world share the creed and that doesn't make them Americans or make us Frenchmen. We are different. And what differentiates us is a specific history of trying to live up to the creed in this land as one continuous political project together. And so I think it's not the creed so much as the story of the creed, right? You look at American history and not just uh, all American history, but rather the specifically the history of us overcoming and doing better generation by generation. That's an inspiring story. And that's a story that I want to be a part of. That's a story I want to take responsibility for. I want to say, this is my story. I'm going to step into the story. I'm going to take it forward to the next chapter. That can inspire the kind of patriotism that inspires a public service, civic service, military service. And, and that, that's why I enjoy the pageantry of, of the civil religion, of the flag and the 4th of July. I love that stuff because it is in a, it's a way of appealing to our emotions to attach us to the story that binds us together as Americans. And I think it's a great way of thinking about American identity. 
Can I ask Paul, you know, does that also tee up your your second book in the in the magisterium Tolkien-esque <laughs> trilogy that you're going to be writing about the, the left next and then eventually the beauty of the sort of order of yes, uh, Christianity political order. How, how do you how do you envision step 1 fitting into the larger argument? Right. So for for context here the uh, preface to my book I outline I say look this is part 1 of a much larger argument. This present book on nationalism is about the the illiberal right. Sam, you just mentioned the elements of the illiberal left, and, and that's my next book. That's volume two in this uh, trilogy. And I'm, by the way, happy to share that InterVarsity has offered me the contract for that. So I, I want to tackle that in a in a kind of a non-culture war-y way. What I mean is I, I do think the left needs a critique, but not the sort of critique you'll find you know, on talk radio. <laughs> it, there's lots of critique out there on the left, and I think that it's missing something. I think there's some both deeper and more interesting things to say about where the left maybe gets it wrong. And then volume three, uh, you made the Lord of the Rings joke. Look, it might literally be titled Return of the King because <laughs> it is going to be a sort of a, a discussion of how should Christians think about political order? What are our loyalties and how do we relate the kingdom of God to the city of man sort of thing? So that's a long, long time from now, but give me some time to come up with the answer. <laughs> and can I just ask one more before you get in, Sam, on, on like the echoes of this same conversation in other parts of the world? We've spent a lot of time looking at national populism on the rise, at nationalisms of various forms on the rise. It's just everywhere. It's in the news. It's a, it's a reality right now. And a number of books and speakers to Faith Angle journalists have, have talked about this. You know, I just was looking up the numbers. Pew says 97 out of 167 countries in the world at the moment are democracies. So it's 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 swelled, and the Bush Library, uh, Paul served, you know, as a citizen soldier, and then in the Bush administration, you know, talks about the rise of of democracy. And Fried Zakaria has his book about uh, the future of freedom. I guess it's sort of like, how similar are the tensions of this conversation about America's unique culture and Christian nationalism with the same wrestlings in Hungary and Austria and. Great Britain and other parts of the world right now, Russia. Do you, as a person who's worked, Paul, in the national security space, see echoes here? And what are the most important one or two ingredients to get right when it comes to posture of exclusion versus embrace? I mean, yes, the rise of Christian nationalism in the United States is part and parcel of a broader global resurgence of nationalism around the world. And in countries with a kind of a Christian history or Christian heritage, it will look a lot like Christian nationalism with differences based on different histories. But look, uh, Viktor Orban's Hungary, the, their new constitution, I think actually says they're a Christian country. Bolsonaro in Brazil is trying to do something similar. I think that Russia right now is a pretty good example of a pretty extreme and militant version of Christian nationalism under the Russian Orthodox Church. So there's lots of examples where people who are confronting a lot of cultural and economic change and turmoil and upheaval all around the world because of decades of globalization, the financial crisis, a lot of immigration. They're looking for to reassert traditional identity. And in almost every case, that means a version of religion, a religious identity matched with their country or their ethnicity or their language. So this kind of religious nationalism, it's extremely common all around the world. I've listed Christian examples, but look, you know, you could find the same thing in Pakistan with a sort of a, their notion of an Islamic national identity. This is, it's just very common all around the world. So that means that whatever solutions there are don't necessarily have to be uniquely American. And some of this stuff is just going to be a generational thing that we live through. 
because it's beyond our control. I don't want to be too pessimistic here. I do want to ask, and actually this was the Sam, Sam I was going to ask you this question. I, I give this talk, I, I people read the book, and they always come back with some version of, of one or both of these questions. What do we do now? What are the solutions? And what, what does normal, good, sane, non-nationalist Christian participation in politics look like? How do I know if I'm doing it right? Those are the kind of questions I get all the time where people are just asking me to turn it into very specific, practical steps. Do you have any thoughts for us on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one, speaking to the idea of, I want to answer that question. I think I also want to speak to the idea of this kind of global phenomenon of right-wing populism and ethno-nationalism that we see emerging. I think a couple of different data points. I think experimental research I think recently that has been published within the last year has shown that oftentimes Christian nationalism, at least in the American context, is a response to perceptions of demographic threat. The perception that I am losing my cultural and political influence and power People increasingly, like when exposed to messages about that, they respond with greater Christian nationalism. It's like a circle the wagons kind of thing. It's like I need to, I need to reinforce this idea that my my cultural values and my views need to be institutionalized in some kind of way. We also found recently, this is an article that we have a peer-reviewed article coming out where we marshal several different data sets to show how Christian nationalist ideology, measured in a variety of ways, in three different data sets, is is associated with support and approval of Putin and his brand of leadership. There seems to be this kind of association between Christian nationalism, even in the United States, and support for strongmen leaders elsewhere throughout the world, which is what we can see. I mean, we can we can see that with our own eyes in kind of the response to Orban and the response to Putin and his kind of regime and other other, other kind of leaders to echo the things that Paul was was talking about. In terms of what this look looks like going forward, I love what 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 Paul has been talking about. I think what he advocates for in the book, I think leaning into a, a broader civil religious tradition. That allows us to celebrate the things that are unique about American culture and life. The creedal story, uh, the story of us trying to live up to and, and, and correct ourselves and to, to change in a way that is aspirational, in a way that allows us to live out Christian values such that we are trying to redeem something that has been in some ways corrupted and brought off track. And we are participating along with people who are not like us uh, and increasingly don't share the same kind of values. I do think there is there is something at the core of Christian nationalist ideology, a fundamental us versus them mindset that is a liberal in the same way we see a liberalism on the left, that it is distrustful of people who are outside of our ideological tribe that we see as enemies and, and it is and we are incapable of cooperating with them and we don't want to. They have to be overcome. They have to be conquered. And I feel like that is at base undemocratic, I think antithetical to a project of Christian witness uh, of how do we live this out. I think within the past few years, and this is really one of the one of the tragedies of Trump, is that I think Trumpism and his brand of politics, I think, has diminished the impulse within the evangelical church to, to protect our witness publicly, that we should be known as as good neighbors, that we should be known as loving. I mean, you hear this kind of talk in social media about like the uh, about we ought to throw winsomeness out the window. We don't do that anymore. We don't do winsomeness. We don't do engaging people in that way. Like, no, it's time to like, the gloves are off and now it's just us versus y'all. Let's fight it out to the death. And I feel like that's a tragedy. I mean, that's just something that is, one, it's a losing proposition demographically, but it's also just something that I think is, has done so much more harm to the public witness of the church. And we need to resurrect that kind of mindset. Uh, that, 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 
that, that sin anywhere should outrage us, that corruption and leadership faults and like a lack of character, an obvious lack of character, a, co- a commitment to baseline norms of decorum and truth, uh, that should outrage us as Christians. So I think, I, I mean, I, there very much is a need to resurrect those kinds of deeper, I think, religious and political values that we've lost somewhere. Can I ask on that topic, again, thinking about the rest of the world just a little bit, have you done any learning, thinking, exploration academically, research-wise, about about sort of responses by other parts of the global church to uh, the upsurge in, in national populism? Are there are there lessons? You, you talk, for example, Sam, you and, and Andrew, about learning from the African-American church in American history as a sort of completely different framework for, for na- Christian nationalism. Uh, it turns it upside down in a way. Right. But are, there, are there similar lessons of any kind about other ways that pockets of the global church have responded to an upsurge in, in, in nationalism or Christian nationalism? That's a great question. I, I actually haven't done research on the, uh, this is a global phenomenon, global responses of the, of the Christian church to this kind of uh, rise of ethno-nationalist populism uh, uh, around the world. I think the black church is a, a good example in that you see even to the degree that the black church would affirm traditional indicators of Christian nationalism, say in a survey, it is not the kind of, it is not the kind of fervor for like institutionalizing our kind of like uh, our kind of ethnoculture or our kind of uh, privilege in the public square. It really I, seems to be more about like defending the freedoms that we should all enjoy and, and making sure that there is a, a baseline equality. I would love to see personally examples of how the church has responded globally in a positive way, these kinds of movements. But I have I have not seen good examples. I'd love to see them, though. One of the great compliments to both books you wrote recently was just sort of wrestling with the actual arguments of the other side and with the actual history and lots of uh, compliment in a lot of different reviews I was just reading today. Another essay along that line that did something similar recently was from Mike Gerson over the weekend. I'd be curious to ask if you guys, if you guys happen to read that and if, if you have any thoughts about sort of where he lands on the idea of sort of pluralist versus protectionist approach, given the model that we do see in the early church. I did read uh, Gerson's essay. I can't recommend it highly enough. As I said to you, Josh, before we start recording, I don't think the headline writer did Mike any favors. The headline was something about how Trump should make Christians filled with rage. That's not the best way to sell the message. And in fact, I don't think it's a very accurate title for what Mike actually wrote, right? I think the article was not about how we need to be enraged all the time. It was rather a really reflective and deep essay on what it looks like to live counterculturally as a Christian in the kind of environment we live in. And he's analogizing to first century Palestine to to look at how the Jesus movement fit in with the culture of the day and therefore how Christians today should respond to to our culture. I like what he writes. And I think that was a, a, a good essay. If I repeat anymore, it'll be just quoting out of my own book because <laughs> like, as I, saw, I said over Twitter, he said everything I tried to say in my book, but he said it much more accessibly and more with more with more wit and wisdom. So uh, great piece. I love that idea of of remembering our own call to to be aliens and strangers in this world. What does that mean uh, in in twenty first century? What does it mean for American Christians to to remember that yes, we have a stewardship. Yes, we have a responsibility to I think honor those in power to, uh, to work within the structures that we have to be good citizens, right? Like to to be to be known for being good citizens, and yet at the same time not uh, engage in a, a kind of Oh, and a kind of hostile practices that suggest that, that this rightfully belongs to us and that we should be uh, willing to sacrifice 
our own reputation, our own witness, and to engage in the kinds of means that would work towards ends that we feel like are advantageous for our own cultural tribe, our own political influence, or our own kinds of things. And I, I, to the degree that we become known for that, I feel like that is an absolute loss. Even it is a is it a pyrrhic victory. Even if we win, we really lose. It is a which I which I've I've said before. It's it feels like every year since Trump uh, in 2016 is a is living out the Scopes Monkey trial all over again. It is it is a it is a it is a seeming victory that ends up being just a a cultural and social defeat uh, that that uh, that we have to live with and we have to adjust to in ways that we want to like I you know I I, I want to I want to reclaim that reputation I want to reclaim that that kind of witness in a way that I, I think is uh, it is helpful it is good for all of us uh, good for the church good for those outside the church good for our society that we happen to be in. That we really do redeem it in some in some positive ways. You know, I think one of me uh, one of the takeaways for me is you know when people ask what are the practical steps, what do we do now? It's truth telling, and it is loving your neighbor. You know, in a very human and local way. You mentioned the the importance of winsomeness, and I would echo that. I think that there is a value to winsomeness in your politics, because politics is an iterated contest. And if you're winsome, even as you lose, then the next time, if you win, your opponent won't treat it as existential stakes and they will be able to accept their loss with magnanimity. That's important in an iterated contest like politics. I have the sign above my window here that I just got up recently, speaking the truth in love, right? I think that's a good motto and a good remembrance from Ephesians 4.15, that that's what we're called to do. What do you do, sort of average citizen? Speak the truth. And that means speak up. If you hear lies repeated, you speak up and say, no, I don't think that's true. Like if you're sitting there in politically right-leaning circles and you hear one person say, gosh, that election was stolen. Well, that's a lie. And you should say so. It may take courage to say so in certain circles. But I think that if you understand the truth, you have an obligation to speak the truth in the moment, uh, even if it takes courage. And even if you may be actually ridiculed in that moment by somebody else in that circle, right? Speak the truth, but do it lovingly. You don't have to ostracize or cancel somebody for their beliefs to say, look, I think you're wrong. I love you. Here's some resources and go your way. I think that's a, that's a good takeaway from these conversations. If you want to push back on some of the stuff in a very real down to earth way, that's one way of doing it. I, I think that also communicates like when we do that, I think that communicates that we, we have other we, we have another home that we have other priorities that this is not like the 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 loss experienced politically here is not the end all be all of my existence it is that, that I can I can rest that I will continue to do what's right that, that I will continue to speak truth that I will continue to love my neighbor and that I have faith that that I've been obedient that I've walked in faith that I've tried to do the right thing and I think we can we can we can rest in that. There is a rest that, that, and I want to communicate that kind of higher value that 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 it doesn't all hinge on me. There isn't some kind of cosmic significance to like me winning or losing this one contest, right? Like I, I have enough faith in the system, and I have enough faith in my place in this world that that God has placed me in to do what's right without worrying so much about the, uh, the eternal stakes of this election. I remember Paul, you making the case for patriotism in a conversation with Arthur Brooks three or four years ago on his podcast. Then, and he identifies these four categories when you're having conversations with people. You got, you know, you got true believers, you got hostiles, apathetics, 
and persuadables. And, and if you can talk to persuadables, especially, you're going to you're gonna save yourself a lot of energy and time, which is which is a great idea. And I, But I also know, Sam, that you guys have some categories in your book, and I wonder if you could lift those up about it was ambassadors and rejectors. Did that, does that help frame some of these conversations, do you think? I thought the categories were useful when we used them. I think we, we wanted to explain that these were, we were using a scale of Christian nationalism that we felt like it was more useful as a heuristic uh, rather than say somebody scores a 12 on our, on our, on our little scale and refer to people as numbers. We, we, we thought it would be better to say like, these are, these are people who are moderately committed to this Christian nationalist rhetoric or I, ideology, but they're not true believers. So these are accommodators, but not ambassadors. And so to the extent that they allow us to have conversations about people who are more or less convinced about this ideology, that that this exists on a spectrum, I think it was helpful. And I think this is something that I, I still try to do. I don't like talking about people as like Christian nationalists. I much prefer to talk about the ideology or the belief system or the cultural framework of Christian nationalism uh, that somebody can more or less adhere to on a spectrum. I, I feel like Calling somebody a Christian nationalist is like calling somebody a fascist or calling somebody a racist. I mean, like it, it scores points. It feels good to dunk on somebody, but you shut down the conversation immediately. I would, I would rather talk about this as a spectrum that people are adhering to or to talk about a style of politics or to talk about a style of rhetoric. So to the extent that the four categories, rejector, resistor, accommodator, and ambassador, allowed us to have those conversations where people exist on that spectrum, I think it's helpful. Uh, I think we get down into the weeds a little bit of people saying like, you know, or is that really 33% of the population or is that like a fifth of the population? You know, I think we don't want to essentialize our categories and to say like people are self-identifying as ambassadors or something like that. Like that's, that's never what we meant. We meant it as more of like a, a heuristic that might be helpful for people to self-categorize or, or just kind of categorize like where people existed in that. And so... Honestly, we, we've never used those categories in our peer-reviewed articles, uh, and we didn't bring them back in, say, the most recent book, The Flag and the Cross. And so, like, I think uh, helpful to get the conversation going, uh, but not necessarily something that we wanted to use forever uh, and lump people into those kinds of, like, arbitrary classifications. One thing I did find useful about those categories was, if I recall, you found that white evangelicals, those who identify, self-identify as evangelicals, there's significant variance within white evangelicals, uh, depending upon church attendance, right? And so the the ambassadors were, there's a lot of people who say I'm an evangelical and don't go to church who ended up as ambassadors for Christian nationalism. They, they were the most enthusiastic about it. And those who attended church more and more often, they kind of fell down the scale. And I thought that was an important finding. And it helps guard against the temptation to say all white evangelicals are, are Christian nationalists, all Christian nationalists are white evangelicals. It's really helpful to help disaggregate and show how that they're not fully overlapping circles. Yes. And so, and actually, this is one of the things that I feel like I, I'm, I can be proud of the, of the research. I think the, one of the things that I, I think we tried to do after 2016, I mean, it just, you know, uh, the election happens and, and, and every headline, I mean, I've collected all of these headlines and every headline was white evangelicals, Four out of five white evangelicals, 80% of white evangelicals. The conversation was very much on white evangelicals on a group as if they were this kind of monolithic category. And I think what, what the Christian nationalism conversation has done, and I think for the, for the good, is to say it really isn't about being a white evangelical as much as it is about this underlying ideology that unites a lot of white evangelicals with a lot of white Catholics, with a lot of white mainliners and a lot of even secular uh, Americans 
who really are more interested in kind of institutionalizing a white Christian ethnocult or that Anglo-Protestantism that, that you talk about, Paul. That's really what we wanted to seize on and say, like, this isn't a story about like white evangelicals. It is a story about an underlying belief system, ideology, a set of claims and myths and, and values that is pretty prominent among white evangelicals for a, ver- for a variety of reasons, but is not synonymous with being a white evangelical. And, and so we've tried to separate and disentangle those two and say, like, let's talk about the belief system and the ideology rather than saying this whole group of people is just like this, which also shuts down conversations, makes people feel attacked, and, and uh, is, is not helpful for enlisting white evangelicals in the, in, in the conversation, uh, you know, about this very real thing. It kind of gets to some one of the things that bothers me the most about Christian nationalism. I think that many Christians have found themselves going along with the agenda of Christian nationalism, allowed other actors to use their name, to use the Christian name, to use Jesus's name, to bless a political agenda. And Christians, they see the word Christian and they're like, well, I guess that's my thing. So I got I to go along with it. That's my tribe without looking carefully at what the agenda is and who the fellow travelers are. And I, I'm concerned about the number of Christians who are maybe uncritically finding themselves drifting in that direction. So I hope that this discussion about Christian nationalism is a helpful way to, to kind of say, hold up, you know, maybe raise a flag, time to pause, let's take a closer look at what this agenda really is and does it align with what Christianity really is. And and is there a piece on that with respect to secular journalists who have either covered your own work? You know, I mean, I, I think that's that's a rub, certainly of the project as well. But do journalists who tend often to be coastal elites and very well educated and not as spending as much time, let's just say, in a in an Oklahoma church, getting to know some 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 fellow neighbors as earnest Christians who are maybe working through these things in, in muddled ways, but decent people? Is there any way in which you think secular journalism's coverage of uh, Christian nationalism or this dynamic could be improved? Uh, I think to the to the degree that they focus on cartoon characters, like who who are, are just the most loud and obnoxious kind of examples of this, who who are very scary even and and angry. I mean, I the, the first year after we 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 wrote the book, it seemed like at least fifty percent of my conversations with journalists about Christian nationalism, they say they would say, "Hey, we want you to we want you to we want to ask you about Christian nationalism," and I would say you know, great, we've got all of this data and we've got, you know, like we really get into all the nuances and that kind of thing. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to talk about Greg Locke. You know, like we, we, want, to, <laughs> we want to talk about some kind of some kind of loud social media personality who is just you know, offensive in every kind of conceivable way and says, you know, is walking up with guns on stage and, you know, giving away raffle tickets for like AK-47s in the church, you know, and, and they would want to focus on the most absurd extreme uh, examples without without tr- trying to really understand like hey what are what are the real fears that these people hold like people who embrace this ideology what are, what are they responding to uh, what is the way that we can communicate and talk to those folks I think they wanted to focus on the cartoon character so to the extent that I think journalists and media I mean there's they're incentivized to do this to go with the kind of clickbaity uh, stuff where you're able to to I think latch on to the most outrageous examples that are scary to people in outrageous I think that that you know potentially short circuits the conversation because I think people paint, feel painted with this very very broad or extreme brush yeah. that is not helpful. And then the media also turns around and over uh, applies the concept of Christian nationalism to any religious expression in public life at all, 
as if Greg Locke represents every religious American. And that's just deeply unhelpful. And it makes people feel as if they're being condemned by being painted with such a broad brush. And uh, that's been a frustrating aspect of the discourse over Christian nationalism, which is why I think it's helpful to kind of define it carefully and closely before we criticize it. <laughs> I love that point, Paul. I think that's really important. I think we've, we've, uh, I've, I've also seen that with frustration. I don't, I don't want Christian nationalism to be the left's version of like wokeness or something like that. Like this, this kind of uh, nebulous, like amorphous slur that is kind of anything that is to the left of me is woke and, and, and now anything to the right of me is Christian nationalism. Like, I think that's just unhelpful and not uh, good for having, I think, intelligent discussion about what, what are the actual issues and views and policies that we, we feel like we would have a conversation about. I, I don't want Christian nationalism to be used that way. And so I think we decided, hey, let's be more careful, careful about defining these terms. I really kind of want to ask, it's kind of an obscure question, but I know, Sam, you've seen this and been part of this conversation Related to this conversation about Christian nationalism is also a conversation about academic disciplines, about political scientists and historians, and uh, the boundary lines between that and sort of theologians or philosophers. And it's sort of a discussion of who has the right to own this conversation, more or less. Do you want to speak to this at all and maybe summarize what the debate's about? I don't have too much to say other than I know that that it is a it is a conversation that we're all having. I mean, I think uh, my interlocutors are, are political scientists most days in what I do, but I think historians are, are rightfully reading the kinds of things that we're writing about, and it, I think it's one of those situations where our data tend to be different and tools that we have. If all I have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail, and 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 so historians want to look at the work that we do and kind of bring back history and kind of talk about oh, how do we history historize this? Are you guys talking about this like it's a new thing, like you invented this or you discovered it? <laughs> Whereas the social scientists are looking at the things that historians are writing and saying, you know, regardless of whether Thomas Jefferson thought this or that or whether or not we see examples of this throughout American history. We've got new data on this thing right now and how it's manifesting itself. And we need to talk about the contemporary manifestation of these things. All of these things are profitable conversations as long as they are acknowledging not disciplinary boundaries, but just the fact that we are coming from at this from different perspectives and we can have good conversations with one another. I think to the extent that there is some kind of like uh, talking past one another, it's just uh, unwillingness to acknowledge that like we have different different tools, uh, different priorities and the kinds of data that we feel like are, are most profitable for the conversation. I will say, though, I, I would be interested in hearing more from theologians and how they are interpreting our work and how that corresponds, because I'm in secular academic conversations about this in sociology and political science and history. But I, I think the theological critiques or responses to the work that we're doing, I think you do a great job with that, Paul, and I'd like to hear more from that perspective as well. Yeah. And that is one of the big disciplinary differences that affects how this conversation plays out. When we political scientists and historians do our work looking at the phenomena and saying, this is what we're seeing amongst people who call themselves Christians. It seems that sometimes theologians feel attacked, right? Because it sounds like we're saying Christianity is bad or Christians are bad or something like that. And they naturally want to defend the faith and defend the flock and defend Christians who are just going about their lives. It can sometimes turn into disciplinary critique where the some theologians will say, well, you guys better watch yourselves. You're speaking outside your bounds or something like that. Right. And so that's that's kind of some of the subtext going on. Maybe I could just say for the record, you know, it's not, I'm a Christian. I have no intent of criticizing the, the faith per se, but I do want to help maybe disentangle 
the faith as we practice it from the culture that we've inherited. And I think that's a legitimate task for us to do. Faith Angle exists to help leading journalists peer into the windows of American religious life, including its populist, authoritarian, and Christian nationalist threats. Thanks for listening.